When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Here to discuss the defense from that Week 9 game against the Vikings. Uh, looking forward to this one. Obviously a great game on Sunday. Joining me today, Gabe Ferguson. Uh, you know him from uh, the Situation Room, which also is on FilmStudyBaltimore.com. How you doing, Gabe? I'm doing great. How are you, Ken? Thank you for having me back. Always always great to talk football with you, Gabe. You know that. Uh, are, are you getting it all overstimulated by these uh, Ravens games? Yes, um, I can definitely answer that with a positive. The anxiety level is so high every single game. I feel like, I don't know, it hasn't been like this for a while. And it's it's uncomfortable, um, but at the end, you know, they're finding ways to win. And I guess that's what matters, right? Yeah, I, I guess that's what matters, yes. <laughs> I can honestly never remember another Ravens team that this was the case, that every game came down to the wire like this. They, the, you know, In the 25 years, they've had great defensive teams, and they've had teams that oftentimes couldn't do it offensively to come back. But to have you know, these wild swings every game where they're either coming back or giving up a 14-point lead, very un-Ravens-like. Yeah, I think it's definitely part of the reason why it's been so difficult, um, at least as a fan, because you don't really know what to expect this season. Um, it's been frustrating often in the first half. You know, the team comes out flat, they get behind. Then there's a second half comeback, and it's late at the very end. You need to have like one or two plays to, to f- get that get that W. And, and they've been able to find ways to, to get the win, which... Which, like I said, that's that's what matters. But I would definitely like to have a few weeks where I don't have to like worry about having a heart attack sometime during the game. Yeah, a couple of nice, easy cruise control wins that we've been used to since the Jackson era began. Frankly, where they just grind the other team to dust for uh, during the first half and just continue to step on the gas in the second. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, they finally kind of got there seemingly at the end of this game where they were just able to roll with the running game. Um, so there is something there. It exists. It, it might be, you know, game script dependent and, and opponent dependent, but they still have that ability to kind of dominate their will over the opponent um, in certain situations. So that's nice to see. Yeah, sure is. Now, something that wasn't nice to see from this game was the injury to Deshaun Elliott, which I, I think I consider to be pretty serious. You know, the starting free safety goes down. Uh, to me, it's a big loss for the flexibility of the pass rush. Uh, and, you know, you lose, you lose an aggressive physical player. And even though he's free safety, who's not really an interception magnet. Uh, he is a guy who really try, goes for the hit more than he goes for the, uh, uh, you know, the overthrow. Uh, I still think he's an important part of this defense. Where do the Ravens go from here? Yeah, I think it's a big loss. Um, he's really kind of come into his own this season. Um, you know, last year he forced into a starting role that wasn't expected, but, you know, he had his kind of ups and downs, I think, as he was feeling out the position. Um, this year, he's really felt like he's grown into that starter. Um, like you said, very physical player, aggressive around the line of scrimmage. We saw him get in on a couple of tackle for losses in this game. Um, I thought this was actually one of his better games that he's had. Um, mm-hmm. um it's really unfortunate to lose him. And, and the Ravens, you know, they're going to have to kind of cobble together, I think, a few different players to fill the void. Um, I, I would imagine Brandon Stevens is going to be the immediate answer um, mm-hmm. to be the starting player at free safety. But, you know, we, we've seen Jimmy Smith in that role a little bit. We've seen uh, Geno Stone um, in that role a little bit um, in certain packages. Um, I think they'll both be involved um, to a certain extent. So I think it might not be like a one-for-one kind of trade-off. We saw Jordan Richards get assigned to the practice squad today. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. he's always been more of a uh, a special teams player. Um, He hasn't really done much on defense, but he might be someone that they look to in certain certain packages as well. Yeah, I think think that's probably the most unlikely of the things. I I, I look forward to see whether or not Stone ends up at free safety uh, because some of this proven ability to play the overthrow – or whether we see Stevens there as as the guy they just immediately turn for turn to for an every down roll back there, but it's it, it, Stevens from what we've seen this year does not seem to have everything they'd want from a free safety right now. Uh, you know, he's had some tackling issues, but also he's had some some not great positioning on the back end. Let's call it. So I, I, I think I'd rather have a guy who plays his reads better, is good with half a field on when they're in cover two. Uh, like Stone, uh, and, and you know you're, that, that might mean you end up with a you know slightly slower player back there, and a guy who who ends up putting those outside corners on an island more when the where the offense wants to put them there. Meaning they want to run outside the numbers. Well, Stone's probably not involved in that play, uh, but Stone can give you some of that uh, soccer goalie mentality of breaking on his read that can get him to one side of the field occasionally that I, that I really like I, I, indecisive, you know, single high safety doesn't really do you a lot of good. He's got to be involved in somebody else's play. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, if it, if it was just my take off of what we've seen from, you know, the first part of the season and the preseason, I think stone is a more natural fit at free safety than Stevens. Now Stevens may eventually um, develop into that role. And I think that was the reason why he was drafted. Um, but I, I don't think he really fully grasps um that position yet um he has never played it at a you know a significant amount of snaps there previous to you know coming to join the ravens um 
I just don't think he has that experience and his instincts necessary in some 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 levels that you would require. Um, he has been a playmaker in, in some aspects when he's mm-hmm. been asked to fill in for Elliot. You know, he's he's someone who can you know run all over the field, make tackles. Um, I'm not sure I trust him on the back end too much in some of the coverage schemes that the Ravens like to use. And I think that when he was in the on games earlier, when Elliot missed some time, there were some breakdowns in the secondary. And I'm not super confident in his ability to just kind of like step in and fill that role. Um, you know, we might actually see more of Chuck Clark playing, patrolling the deep safety um, and seeing more Stevens up in the box. Um, they, they might switch a little bit in terms of their roles. Yeah, that, that honestly, I think that plays to the weakness possibly of both players because, you know, Clark is, is like his background is as a dime back. He had his great year there in 2019. Obviously, he was playing full time when he got that role, but the Ravens played so much dime. Dime back was really the position he excelled at. And I think he's a better guy in the box. He, he can do other things for you from that spot. Uh, it's not like he's terrible in the back end because he has some good anticipation uh, ability, but I, I just prefer him as being a guy who's uh, more likely in that weak side linebacker platoon role than in, than in the uh, a guy you have splitting the back end uh, or, or certainly taking single high on the on the back end. We'll, we'll see how this comes out. There's two more additional factors to this that really bother me. The first is that the Ravens now have lost their backup signal caller. Because Elliott would certainly have gotten the role. There's nobody else on the team who could possibly have it after Clark. And so now the Ravens don't have anybody. And and I, I, I guess now it would mean Stevens is the backup signal caller. Because they're really there's no inside linebacker who plays every down. Yeah, that's a great point. Um and yeah, it's not somebody you're going to put on a cornerback's responsibility. So mm-hmm. that's that's yeah, that's, I guess, I mean Stevens is likely the guy who's gonna be on the field the most frequently if if something were to happen to Clark. So that that definitely is an interesting position or or maybe you do keep a linebacker out there maybe binds is the guy you just keep out there and limit yourself in some ways that in that perspective but he's he's been playing most snaps he's playing like 80 percent of the snaps he's not out there for you know some of those dime packages but you might make an exception if that's what you think you have to do if you if you if you substitute binds for binds for board i mean i don't really know how much you're giving up on third down but you might want to have no inside linebackers and then you lose that option so if the Ravens want to go back to play more race car with Campbell and then a dime package, but you know, behind that, uh, you know, they, they could do that now, but they can't do it if Clark goes down, or at least they, they have to give Stevens the, the signal calling role. I, you know, I, th- I think basically this leads to my other point is do the Ravens need to go outside the organization and find somebody at this point. Cause there are Trey Boston is available. Um, you know, Drew Rosenhaus is going through his normal agent speak of saying he can't believe why nobody signed him so far. Uh, he's 29, uh, still a possibility. He was a very good player through about 2019. Uh, not sure what he's got left. You know, I, I mean, knowing Eric DaCosta, he's probably going to explore all options. Um, I, I mean, I mentioned Richards. I don't think he's someone they consider as a real, you know, defensive starter or even like sub player. Um, but you know, they did make that move. Um, it seemed like it corresponded with the injury. Um, so but there's definitely room to make another move. I, I don't think that's outside the question. It could be, it could be Boston. Um, I think we just saw Tony Jefferson sign somewhere else. So he's not an option, um, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, there's probably other names out there and I think they'll definitely do their due diligence and, you know, maybe bring some players in for workouts, see if someone seems like a good fit. Um, that's generally the, the approach that they've been taking. Right. I mean, if they're, if they're going to do it, they need to do it now to only miss the Miami game. 
and and obviously can't get anybody in time for Miami. But if they did it right now, I believe they would be able to onboard this person in time for them to play the next game. So it's, you know, time is of the essence right now. I think that, that it probably almost has to be Tuesday that they do it to, to maybe it could be Thursday, but it, it has to be in the next couple of days anyway that they that they do this in order to get him on board for the uh, the Chicago game. Yeah, and it could be that they're willing to wait it out a week or two um, if it means getting the right player in the in the building. Um, because, you know, the next two games are probably the easiest two games left on the schedule. I know that the, they probably don't think about it that way, but mm-hmm. if, if you had a real need um, against a team that was, you know, a really high-end passing offense, you might feel, feel like you needed to put a little more pressure and get someone in there faster. The next two teams are not, good passing attacks um and you can probably uh, live with the players you have in the building for now and then bring someone along slower for you know for the down the stretch series of games which are going to be a a much tougher um stretch yeah i i think i could definitely see that um uh jimmy smith i i don't think he's really part of the solution you know the the point has been made several times by several people in the last couple days particularly after smith only played one snap yesterday that you know, why are they not playing him more? And and they could play him at safety even after Elliott got hurt. Maybe they didn't have to put Stone in there. They could have used Smith instead. And and part of that is that Smith is too valuable as a backup cornerback to use as a backup cornerback, <laughs> and, and definitely as a backup safety. I mean, he's, he, if you're facing Pittsburgh down the stretch, they're a team not known to play a lot of O one and ten personnel. And they might literally throw four wide receivers on you on a high percentage of the plays because that's what what worked for Roethlisberger last year against the Ravens. And the Ravens are going to want to have four cornerbacks to respond to that. And maybe Westry is back and they'll be okay. Or maybe he's not and they'll really need to have Smith. Or maybe somebody else will get hurt and they'll really need to have Smith. So it, it's I think it's a case where, they, where they're being careful with Jimmy uh, because they know he's a, he's a valuable commodity at some point. I, I agree. I think they're, you know he's had so many injuries nick nicks here and there um even you know last season you missed some time it's, it's not someone you want to mess around with playing some snaps if you don't really need him and, and right now at cornerback they've been pretty solid with the three cornerbacks they have out there and, you know there have been obvious issues um cincinnati game obviously comes to mind but i don't and jimmy smith played some in that game um so and he played a cornerback so you know i think that's where he, if he is needed he'll be playing um I do think Westry coming back will provide some insurance and then who knows, maybe we see him doing some different things, but um, I definitely think that he's someone that they want to keep in their back pocket as, as a commodity. If they, if they need him, if something were to happen to one of their, their top corners. Yeah. He's a Trump card that they can, they can pull out. You want to have one of those anyway. Uh, unfortunate situation. We'll, we'll have to move on here. Uh, this is a game where the, the best offense Sorry, the best defense. We're talking defense. Best defense is a good offense. Uh, Ravens really dominate all the time of possession metrics to degrees that I don't think people are completely realizing it. They had, you know, a 46 to 24 time of possession, and people will delude themselves into thinking they remember lots of 40 to 20 time of possession games, but they're very rare. Um, the They outsnapped the Vikings 89 to 51. And the 51 is it's, it would be 52, but they had a, a, a fake punt that doesn't really count as a offensive play is the way I would look at it. Uh, so 89 to 51 or 52, if you want to call it that. But that's enormous. The 89 plays, the third highest total in Ravens history. They had 92 in the playoff game against Tennessee. 
they had 90, 90 or 91, whichever, in the game against San Diego in the 4th and 29 overtime game in 2012. And then they had 89 in this one. Uh, just an outrageous total. Yeah, it's a huge discrepancy. Um, obviously, the the kick return touchdown um, also has a role in that. That's a, a complete you know possession that's taken mm-hmm. away for the for the Vikings. Um, but I mean, it, it also goes to speak to how good the Ravens defense actually played in a lot of these possessions. Um, they ha- I think the, the Minnesota had basically three drives where they, they had long extended drives and everything else was just short. Um, and then the Ravens on the flip side, they had long extended drives. They were able to control the ball, run a lot of snaps, run a lot of time off the clock. Um, and they kept the defense fresh. Uh, and it, you know, it really, it kind of went back to that way of dominance that the Ravens had back in 2019, where they were mm-hmm. getting up two score leads, um, just running the ball down teams throats and the, the other team couldn't do anything about it. And by the time they were down, you know, 20 points in the second half, they'd given up. Um, and, and that's pretty much what we would like to see. I think other Ravens, it, it wasn't exactly how this game went in terms of the score, but the way the drives and the possessions were going, it had this similar kind of vibe to it and a similar kind of impact. Yeah. It, it certainly looked like they were dominating the line of scrimmage, particularly in that fourth quarter and in overtime uh, to, to a degree, you know, we, we would love to see the, the big statistics in the game, 36 first downs. Now the out first down, the Vikings 36 to 13, the 36 first downs is a, is a new franchise record for the Ravens it beat the old franchise record by four. So it's, it's, it, that's not close obviously, but then if you look at the history of the NFL, there's only been eight occasions on which a team has had 37 or more first downs in a game. And it didn't even seem that extreme the way the Ravens played. I mean, the first half, they, you know, I guess this was imprinted on my mind was how poorly they'd really played offensively and you know, that they were, they kept getting stopped. And of course they lost the turnover battle two to nothing. So that kind of sticks with you. They did make all their fourth downs, but they were only six of 15 on third down. You know, it's just, you know, it's, it's okay, but it's certainly not good. Uh, it just didn't seem like a 36 first down game. And I saw it and I was like, wow, really? And, uh, and then to, to look at it and, and, you know, it's, it's been done, uh, six times since the merger, eight times total since they've been keeping track of first downs in NFL history. So I was really surprised by that, that, uh, the all time record, by the way, is only 40. So wow. Ravens are uh, close. To really that. close. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting because I think it was a, it was a, it was kind of related to the way that the Vikings were playing defense um, and, and they were kind of playing like a shell coverage where they were allowing the Ravens to both run and take short completions. Um, so that led to a lot of second and shorts, a lot of, you know, first downs. They picked up some first downs on first down plays. So they kind of just kept adding up. And, but they weren't getting like the explosive plays that the Ravens were getting earlier in the season. The Vikings were clearly trying mm-hmm. to limit those. Um, so that led to these long drives, extended drives. I think there was one drive at some point where the Ravens had like 12 plays for, to go 44 yards. It's, it's, it's one of those things you sometimes you'll see in like a college box score, but you don't really normally see in the NFL. Um, it's, it's, I mean, that wasn't the end of the drive, but it was like at, some, at one point through one. And that's just kind of what the Ravens were doing in this one because they were able to just take what, you know, the opponent was giving them. Yeah, I mean, they they gained a fair number of yards on every drive except the one that had the interception. They never went three and out in the game. They did go one and out the one time. So, I mean, they, they moved the ball fairly effectively. They had four drives of 10-plus plays. So, that, that'll that help you bump up that total snap, yeah. uh, to, to be sure. Uh, anyway, uh, very one-sided uh, type of possession game. 
the other thing I want to talk about here as a, as kind of a lead item is playing without Brandon Williams. Cause the Ravens, every time they've done that, they've given up a ton of rushing yards. They've been kind of looked overmatched at the line of scrimmage uh, at the point of attack on the rush. And I felt this game was a very weird alternate to that. So the, the, it's not like the, the, the um, Minnesota was ineffective running the balls. If you look at their overall stats, because they ran the ball 24 times for 131 yards, so five and a half per play. So on the surface of that, that looks excellent. You know, you, you, if the Ravens did that, we might not even think that was that bad in a game without inspecting it deeper. But when you look at it a little deeper, they had a run right for 66 in there. That's half the yards right there. They had three other runs for 11, 15, and 24. When you, when you take out those runs, and then there's, there's also a run on the fake punt for nine that doesn't even really count as an offensive play, so they really had 122 off uh, total rushing yards. They didn't have any play between five and ten yards the entire game. So it was all these barbelled results where they had four really good plays and a bunch of negative eight to four plays that were in there. <laughs> it was everything in the group. So I, I don't think that Minnesota was actually particularly effective. And if you had your passing game, produce results like that be totally unacceptable yeah i i I think you know it goes back to also you know the ravens got out to a bad start um those two big plays early on and you know one of them was the was the running game you mentioned but they i don't think they really missed williams in in this at all and honestly you know I, i feel like he's been a little banged up this year he hasn't seemed like himself um i and maybe this was just allowing him to get you know, an extra rest um, so he can get back to that form that we've seen from him um, as, as a consistent, like, run clogger up in the middle. Um, I thought Ellis played fine. Um, he wasn't, mm-hmm. like, a standout, but he he held his ground for the most part, um, did his job. And, you know, he. I mean, that's why they have him on the roster. So someone can come in and fill that role if Williams isn't out there. Because, you know, we have seen in the past that when Williams goes out, they have issues. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, and what they asked out of Ellis in this game was absurd in terms of snaps. And they, they didn't have that many total defensive snaps, so it made it possible. But he played 37 snaps, only one less than Campbell in terms of you know non-penalty, non-spike, all that stuff, uh, snaps. And that's just too many for him. It really is. And I thought he did play well. I thought I, you know, I thought he held the point of attack reasonably well. I did have him for getting blocked one time on one of their big four plays. Uh, but generally, he, he was pretty darn good. And uh, he had a nice pressure uh, on Cousins. Or Cousins just folded up like origami, uh, you know, to, to, to get rid of the ball and fall down. I thought it was about as good as a game as you can get from Justin Ellis. And going into this game without another nose, you know, they had McKenzie, who played five snaps. And they had... Um, Washington, who's not really a nose, and they have Batapike, who's certainly not a nose. You know, both of those guys are three techs. And then they have Campbell, who I guess can play the nose on passing situations, or he can be one of four in passing situations. They, they really didn't have anybody else to play the nose in their base package, which we'll get to in a moment. Yeah, and I mean, it was so surprising. They had a pretty lean rotation in this one, too. Like, you, you mentioned yeah. McKenzie and Washington, but they were barely used. The Ravens play a lot of base, and it was a very... Mm-hmm tight rotation for their defensive linemen and you know without wolf on the roster it's they don't really have a lot of guys it seems like they trust um along the defensive line they're really putting a lot of a lot of snaps on on the top guys and that's to some extent working in some of these games but it's also something that could prove to be problematic if they they start to get worn out um you know campbell's older um you know matabike he's 
he's young, so you should think he could take the snaps, but he's also someone who doesn't have necessarily the size that you want of a defensive lineman, and he can have some issues in the running game at times. So um, it, it's something that I'm going to be monitoring, I think, as the season as season wears on. Right. I mean, Matabike, he's a pure three-tech. I mean, he's he's in there for his quickness to beat a guard, usually in a passing situation. And the pass rush things they do around him, whether it's any kind of any kind of stunt under move or other things, they all create opportunities for him to get a one-on-one matchup. But he's actually, he's one of the Ravens' one-on-one winners. That's what's really cool about Matabike. I want to go back to something, though. I want to go back to the value of the run game, because in, in looking at this, I, 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 when you, when the Ravens run the football, what are the things they want to get out of it? They want to get, you know, more less variation to their plays and reliably create shorter conversion distances, particularly the 2019, 18 Ravens, where they really didn't want to end up even in a third and five or six situation. They want to end up in third and three. And then they, they're always confident getting it on two downs kind of thing. And they were very good at doing that. They were very good at, at, at extending to fourth down, taking it when they needed. They were very good at all those things. This Ravens team has they, – they throw more on early downs. They've had more incompletes. They've had more trouble running the ball because they have crappy running backs and not the same good offensive line they've had in the past. So they've, they've had difficulty getting getting started with the run game. they got to go in you know, at, at two, after, what, for the last three-fifths of this game roughly. Uh, but but they're, they, you know, what you want out of a running back running game isn't what the Vikings got from what the Ravens gave them is the point I'm making. Is that they got these extreme barbell results, and it's like having if you took all the negative ones to to plus ones that they got, and that was a lot, and treated them as incomplete passes, you'd realize just how ineffective their offense was if you compare it to just them throwing the ball out every down. Yeah, and the thing was also interesting and impressive on the Ravens' defense was the, the Vikings got to a f- number of third and short situations, mm-hmm. but they weren't able to convert them. The, the Ravens' defense really held up strong, and I think to some extent, it was because the Vikings tried to run in all those third and shorts, and the Ravens just wouldn't allow it to be converted with, with their run defense. Right. Um, so that goes to you know how good they were in those situations. Also, uh, the Vikings didn't seem to want to even try to pass in those situations. They felt like they had the you know the advantage for some reason running the ball when even though they weren't in those short situations for much of the entire game. Yeah. So the uh, even yeah, I guess they they threw a couple times maybe on the goal line. So they don't. Yes. They, uh, it, but they but you're right. Most of the rest of the field they were trying to run for it, and Cook was just not getting there on a, on a lot of those. So. That's good. I, I, I'm, I was really happy, and I don't think you can just look at yards per carry and compare them to standard yards per carry if the results aren't arranged in a different way. Was the was the kind of the point I'm making about what the Ravens did to them here? It's just I think, despite the 5.5 yards per per carry, I think the Ravens played good run defense in this game. As weird as that seems, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. All right. Uh, let's talk packages here. And uh, there were a few things in the packages that I really wanted to point out. But one of them was that the Ravens played a extraordinary or a, or a fair amount of base base defense in this game. So they played 24 snaps of base defense, and that was where a lot of their run success came. They did give up three long run plays, uh, but they also got gains of minus three, four, one, three, three, minus one, minus one, zero, minus eight, one, and minus one other than the three long gains of 11, 15, and 24, which, by the way, would show you just how ineffective <laughs> that running game was. So the average 4.1 yards per play uh, overall, including 51 pass plays, uh, 51 yards on 10 pass plays. So the, the, the base was effective. You mentioned the lean rotation. 
And this was true not only in the base defense, which they they were you know really wanting to get their big three on the field, Matapike, Campbell, and and Ellis as often as possible. They got seventeen snaps out of Washington in this way, so he rotated some, but they only got five out of McKenzie. So it was really a case where. They were they were tight there, but they were also tight at other positions. Outside linebacker, only three guys got appreciable snaps in this game. Ferguson and, and McPhee were both active, but McPhee got three snaps, and Ferguson, I think, got seven snaps in this game. Yeah, you know, the Ferguson thing was interesting to me because I felt like Justin Houston was kind of taken advantage of in the in the running game in this one. That felt like they were running at him, um, and quite a few of the plays where they picked up large chunk yardage um, and I think that's why we saw Ferguson come in on some of those early rundowns but um, they, they kind of went away from him later on in the game and just stuck with Houston um, I you know I think that's just definitely one of those things where you, you just side with the the veteran in those situations you, in case they're passing I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure they really trust Ferguson to be a pass rush threat um, which you know, he hasn't been on the field very much, so it's understandable. And and you brought in Houston to be a playmaker for you. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because I feel like with McPhee, he's been someone that they've they've put a lot of, um, you know, pressure on, I think, in certain times where the, he's been a playmaker for them. They've asked a lot of mm-hmm. him in the past to play a lot of snaps. Um, he's so played well. Yeah, and he has. Uh, I don't know if they're saving him for like a, a down the stretch kind of thing, or if he's a little banged up and they just don't have him on the injury report. Um, but I felt like you know he's someone who can play very well in limited number of snaps, and maybe this is just their way of, of getting the most out of him because maybe they felt like they were stretching him too much earlier on. But he's someone who he definitely offers a, a different type of profile from their outside linebacker position than um, you know some of their, their younger players like the Bowsers and the. Um, always who are who are lighter um, don't, don't necessarily set the edge with as much of um, the size and authority as someone like McPhee can. So it's it's interesting to to see them going away from him. And we've already talked about Smith. Um, so maybe it's just kind of like a veteran getting a snap count kind of situation. It, it could be a pitch count thing, I guess. I mean, I look at McPhee's season snap total, and this is again excluding penalties. So he's under twenty snaps a game, as I recorded, nineteen and a half snaps a game uh, through eight. And that is just not what we've seen from Pernell McPhee in recent years. What, it's funny because when Pernell McPhee was signed here, I was like, I'd love to get 15 snaps a game. I think it could really help us as a situational pass rusher. And then he comes in and he's the best at everything. He's the best edge setter. He's the best you know, pass rusher. He's a guy you can kick inside and use in you know, race car and give yourself an extra pass rush juice you really need to, to have a guy who can command a double team on the inside. And, and all of a sudden, we need him playing every single snap he possibly can. Of course, 2019, he got hurt doing that. Okay, I don't know if he got hurt doing that, but it didn't help. <laughs> After seven weeks, he was, you know, he was lost for the season. And then in, in 2020, he came back, and, and they, they used him more sparingly. And he actually, for my money, he won them that Tennessee playoff game with his play. I mean, his, he totally shut down the run in terms of the edge play. Yeah, so maybe maybe it is just a, a matter of putting him in the right situations in the right right games where they really need to have that you know, that boost, to, whether they're pass rush or, or their run defense in the right situation. Um, I think they've also leaned a lot more on Justin Houston as kind of that that veteran guy this this season um, than they have. They haven't really had that player in the past, and McPhee was that player in the past. They have they haven't really had someone other than him. So now you have two guys who you can you kind of feel like you can lean on a little bit more in terms of that experience level, um, and obviously the, having a rookie who's 
been playing pretty well. He's, he's someone who you want to have out there a lot as well. So, you know, the Ravens do have always wanted to rotate their linebackers at the uh, outside linebackers. Um, and I think that rotation has, has been pretty consistent this year, but it's, it's, it's definitely moved away from where it has been in the past where you have, you know, four or five guys with a pretty big rotation. Now it seems like three guys who are rotated pretty consistently and two who are taking a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's what it was in this game. And, and Ferguson and, and um, McPhee, they were very effective when they were in there. They're, they're, the uh, Vikings only got 10 plays on 10 yards when each of those were in, and it was always one was in, never never yeah. both. So uh, it was kind of interesting. You also you activate five outside linebackers, and you never once go to the race car package with four outside linebackers for the pass rush. That was really strange to me. You know, it's an opportunity to get that second inside linebacker off the field. You put in Campbell, four outside linebackers. Bowser more plays a more likely drop to coverage role, but not a certain, not a sure thing. And you play six behind that, and you've you, you know you've really got something. I would think against a quarterback like Cousins, where you really want to create that quick disguised pressure, you'd really want that sort of an opportunity rather than having that extra inside linebacker on the field. But uh, but they never went to it, and and it was a little surprising given that they they spent an extra activation there. Yeah, you know that's a good point with with having them both active, and and neither one of them is really a big special teams contributor. I'm not sure what Ferguson's snaps are, but I don't think he's a he's a major special teams player. Um, and McPhee obviously isn't as well. So, it, yeah, it's interesting use of use of player personnel. Um, and and as far as like the the race car thing goes, I feel like that's something that we've seen more when they have big leads. Um, and they're and they're not so concerned about you know maybe a, a run that can gash them. Um, and, and maybe it's, it's the, the threat of Dalvin Cook being there. They want to have some a couple of like heavier bodies out there, um, just to make sure that they have that ability to at least clog it up a little bit on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's not unreasonable. It's it's also nice to have some pursuit, and I think players like Ferguson and and certainly uh, Bowser give you more pursuit value. Uh, you know when when you're when you're talking about losing losing a. Uh, a spot there. Anyway, I, I'm 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 okay with it. I just I was a little bit surprised by by the way this went down. Um, one of the really strange personnel decisions came up on that fourth and nine play. Now Elliot setting the stage. Elliot got hurt, and on fourth and nine, and they were at what about the fifteen yard line, sixteen mm-hmm. yard line because they got they got a twelve yard lean down to the four. I think is how it worked yeah. out. So they put they stayed with the nickel. And they kept Queen on the field for that play. And so Martindale, with with the injury to Elliott, basically was faced with a choice. He could put in Stone as the third safety, uh, or he could leave Queen on the field as the second inside linebacker and continue with Nickel. It's just that one-for-one choice is the only difference from the the two packages that they would have selected from. And it it was interesting that they made that choice, I thought. And then, of course, they lost... uh, they lost Jefferson, and they didn't get home with a pass rush. They end up with a with a, you know a twelve yard conversion on on fourth and nine. That was unfortunate. Um, strange to you at all? I was I was more puzzled by the play call, so in so much as you had basically ten yards off the line of scrimmage where the cornerbacks were lined up. Um, that to me was more puzzling than the personnel usage. Um, but I do think in that situation, it would make sense to have six uh, defensive backs out there. Um, it was it was just a, weird to see basically giving up that free release and having that space underneath. Even if he had you know stopped and gotten the ball short of the six, he probably still could have picked it up because nobody would have been there to tackle him. Um, 
I'm just not sure why that was a defense call. And I might have even considered calling a timeout after they came out with that three alignment on the on the side um, because they didn't have the guys to cover it well. They, I mean, they had three players on the other side of the of the defense or four players on the other side of the defense who were covering one player, and then you had three on the one side and basically manned up. And it was just it didn't look like it was going to work out well for the Ravens the way they were aligned. Um, so that that to me was just a puzzling play call all around. You're on mute. It wouldn't be an episode of this if we didn't have a mute incident. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, I, what I was going to say is the nature of bunch formation makes it um, uh, sometimes possible to get an easy, quick release. And I think that's the way we think of it, the way the Steelers and the way Kansas City run their bunch formations is they always seem to burn us for a for a quick hitter. And oftentimes, if you have Travis Kelsey or you have another big-bodied receiver who can use his body to shield off of a defender – then you've got a pretty good chance to get the release you want and have the opportunity to take that short throw if you need to. If you, if you don't, then the offense has kind of done the defense in a favor by having all the receivers start in the same position because we already know that you don't want to run your receivers into the same area of the football field. That doesn't do you a lot of good when you have multiple defenders there. So they have to immediately break out of that, and there has to be some sort of confusion or rub or pick that they gain a value from for you to really want to start there. So if it's well-designed, or if maybe it's a it's a wide receiver screen, then it has value. But otherwise, you know, they, they might actually be helping you. The thing the Ravens did on the play that I thought was a little unusual is they had the A-gap blitz shown. So they had six at the line of scrimmage. And they had to drop guys into coverage. Now, that's not so bad against a bunch formation because you're usually dropping laterally to the line of scrimmage. That might give you a real good chance to impact the throwing lane. If you make Cousins pull down the ball, it's almost as good as – um, making Cousins throw the ball in that situation where you might knock it down and intercept it because game's over in either case. If you get a sack, game's over. If you, if you get an interception, deflection, any sort, game's over. So I didn't dislike it so much from, from that perspective, but I think you got to use the ability to move laterally uh, when you do that. So it, it, was, it, was, a, it was an interesting play. I, I was obviously frustrated that Stevens wasn't able to stay with him. It was Stevens, right? Stevens is a guy. I, I think it was Young who was covering him on that one. You're right. It was Young. You're right. It was, and I, I was a little frustrated that he couldn't stay with him. But you know, it's it's a a top NFL wide receiver on a good slot corner, and it's just not always going to work out. Yeah, and I mean, he was running that rut, that route out of the slot, so he has options. I mean, he looked like he was potentially going to turn it into a post, and that's what Young kind of bit on because he didn't want to give up the touchdown there. And then it was just wide open because the other two receivers had run off the defenders. Um, so it was a pretty – I mean, it was a tight route. I mean, Jefferson's a great route runner, so that's that's a tough matchup for anybody one-on-one out of the slot. Um, so I can't give – you can't give too much hate on Tavon Young for that, although I feel like he could have been in a better position if he was closer to the line of scrimmage. That's just the way I, I see it. All right. 
All right. Outstanding. Uh, let's move on and talk about the pass rush a little bit. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this was another kind of a limited deception pass rush, moderate numbers. The Ravens, you know, probably 35, 36%. They were at 35.7% uh, for five plus rushes in this game uh, is, is normal for the Ravens. Not low, not high, just normal. Um, in terms of deception, uh, they used five off-ball blitzes, so that's 0.18 per play. That's still kind of low, but it's not at the 0.02 or 0.05 level we've seen in recent weeks from this defense. So it's it's uh, just been some absurdly low off-ball blitz totals. What's interesting is Queen is not part of the off-ball blitzing anymore. So they used Bynes uh, three times, and they used Tavon Young twice among those five. So they didn't they didn't spread it out over a bunch of different players or anything like that. And Queen is the guy who really got left out on it. Yeah, I think Queen did come when he was lined up on the line scrimmage a couple of times, yeah. but like you said, not in this kind of late developing plays. And, and maybe that's just something they've seen out of him in terms of where he's been useful and where he hasn't been. Um, I, I feel like the, the timing sometimes on, on some of those blitzes he's had have been, has been off and he hasn't really been very impactful there. So maybe they feel like he's better um, dropping into coverage or, or not being on the field at all in those situations. Um one thing that I thought was interesting, and this goes back to the the play we were talking about earlier with, where the two uh, linebackers were triggering the A-gaps, um, and there, there was a similar play. It was actually on the touchdown, the long touchdown to Jefferson, where you had defenders who were all along the line of scrimmage, and then you had three guys drop off, um, but they're in a very small area where they're mm-hmm. dropping into their zones. Um, they can't get adequate depth in the kind of coverage you want. So, and it's, I mean, it's look like a cover three that they're trying to drop into, but there's yeah. basically four defenders who are very tightly packed in the middle of the field covering one player. And then you have Humphrey who, because there's nobody on the short um, flat route to cover that zone, he he's to take biting. From short to deep. Yep. Exactly. So he's biting on that, that out route. And that allows the, the wide receiver to have an easy kind of opening with Clark taking the, the crosser. So, I feel like having that level of deception in that defense is something that's actually limiting what you can do in the coverage and it's hurting you on the back end because you, you have to play that perfectly in, in order for it to work out. Simulated pressure definitely makes it, it, the burden very heavily on the dropping defenders. And then that, they transfer that burden naturally to whoever are the shell defenders, who are the, who are the guys who are you know, behind there. You know, if, if you're not getting a gain from lateral movement, I really don't like it nearly as much. But when your guys are able to drop and move laterally and enter areas where the quarterback does not expect them to be, that's when you get big plays made out of that. It was a third and seven play. They took the top off the defense, threw the ball for 50 without fear. And, you know, it's a it's an all or nothing move that really paid off for them in this instance. I, I don't know that they had the Ravens plugged for cover three zone on that play. I don't know if they read it that way. They may have, but, but uh, uh, you know, they, they did know that they were throwing at Marlon Humphrey in that situation. Uh, Marlon Humphrey had deep left. It would have been between his zone and Clark's in terms of, of where that would have been. But I think it was really more on that um, enough left of the left hash that it was really Humphrey would mm-hmm. have been the guy. Uh, but it's just, it's a hard, that's a hard play to, to get covered up if they get a, a step or any kind of a move made on your, uh, on your all pro corner. So, you know, you take your chances. Yeah. And I think you're looking at tendencies there. Um, and, and you see the Humphrey Humphrey has for better or worse, he's been wanting to sit on that, that under route um, or that out route. He's played that, 
effectively against like the Chargers. We saw them try and take that you know mm-hmm. short route where he came up with a couple of nice um, pass deflections or, or interfered with the ability to catch the ball um, on a couple of, I think fourth down conversions in that game. Um, on this game, they they used that aggressiveness um, and and found you know a way to you know beat him over the top. So I think you know. You know, teams study other teams. It's it's a good it's a good tendency beater. Um, I'm not sure how often the Ravens are in a cover three shell, but it was definitely a, a play to attack that. Yeah, they're they're definitely a, a very commonly a cover three team. So uh, it's uh, and I've seen the numbers. There's a, there's a nice site out there for it, but uh, I, I haven't seen them just uh, just recently for the Ravens. But they play a lot of cover three. Uh, what else do I want to talk about here? I think that's that's enough about the pass rush. Other than when they did get pressure, which was not an insignificant amount of time, they got forty three percent pressures, which is pretty good. They got forty three percent ample time and space, which is pretty bad. And Cousins did not have a lot of ball out quick throws, which was that was the thing that was missing in this game. So they got a they got a uh, when they got a pressure on him, he looked very jittery to me. I mean, he looked he, he was diving out of the way even on the final play of overtime for them, the final play of the game. When, you know, everything's on the line, you got a blitz coming from Chuck Clark and it looked like that blitz was coming from Miles Garrett as far as what, you know, how it was viewed by Cousins in terms of the hit he was going to take. Yeah, he definitely looked panicky, um, even like he didn't have the ability to kind of step around and maneuver in the pocket. Um, like contrasting, for instance, with, with Joe Burrow, like we saw a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago, the way he maneuvered the pocket under pressure. I mean, they brought a lot of similar looks um, even more against against Burrow. Um, but he was able to kind of like move around and, and buy an extra second or two and find his receivers. That's something that Cousins, I think I saw him climb the pocket maybe once the entire time in this game. Um, I think he was able to make a conversion to the, to the tight end. It wasn't a, a third a first down conversion but he got like an 18 yard gain on a play where he was able to step up in the pocket but he didn't do that very often he definitely just wanted to kind of sit there and get rid of the ball um and if it wasn't something that he saw um that was open he was going to throw an incompletion because he didn't care yeah yeah that's that's a great point he's he's also to me he's not leaving the ball on the field to play kind of enough he definitely is a guy who wants to ground the football he's obviously very concerned about his interception total that's that's apparent in his play style Uh, And, you know, obviously it is a good characteristic for pocket quarterbacks to know when the when the day is lost and you want to fight again uh, to ground that football. It just he's a very extreme grounder and and thrower aware of the football. Yeah, I mean, he's like in the Alex Smith mold, um, same yeah. same kind of player. He, he's not going to take risks. He's not going to put it in a position where he thinks it's, it might get intercepted. Um, even, even though he does have good receivers who I think can make plays for him, um, if it's not a, an open throw, he's he's probably not going to take it. And if he doesn't feel comfortable in the pocket, he's going to you know get rid of it. That's just the way he plays. All right. All right, let's talk about individual players. You're the guest. You go first. Who would you like to talk about? I'm going to start with someone who I thought had a good bounce back weekend. That's Marlon Humphrey. Despite the t- touchdown we talked about earlier, um, outside of that, I think he was in great position the entire time. He had a tough task. You know, he guarded Jefferson a lot in this one. Um, Who's one, one of the better receivers in the NFL? I think even as just a second year player, um, he you know rightfully kind of took his medicine after the game against Cincinnati. And I think he played very well in this one. Um, so that's something I think you want to see one out of your leader, out of, out of one of the better players, highest paid players on the team um, to really come back and make a lot of important plays in this one. 
Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think he looked pretty good here too. And, and uh, he did get Jefferson a lot. I, I didn't notice if they were chasing Jefferson for most of the game. Did you happen to catch that? Something I normally look for, but I wasn't looking for it in this one. You know, I didn't notice that in particular. Um, I don't think they, they were following him around, but I think it, it was matched up on him quite a bit through it from what I saw. Okay, so it, it, it can happen naturally if both receivers yeah. are on the same side of the field, obviously, so you, you can get that ad, uh, you know, set up. And, and when it does, then he's usually going to take uh, Jefferson of those two. But it, it's uh, Averett, very natural right cornerback. I think he might prefer that shoulder in terms of, of where he wants the sideline to be, where he wants his catching hand to be, where he wants his, his frankly, his deflection hand to be. Uh, but, but I think he, he, he's, he's a good uh, – he's, he's very good, certainly, in terms of using the sideline, but I think he's also good at using that, right, that left sideline from the offense's perspective uh, in terms of how he does it, did it. I agreed. I thought that, that uh, Marlon had a good game, and I don't blame him too much for the, for the touchdown and giving up a big play to a to a, obviously a very talented receiver. I'm, I'm going to talk about Averitt. We'll stick at the cornerback position because I thought he did a great job. And he had Adam Thielen for a fair amount of the game. A young had him too for some. Um, you know, the only play of any significance that Averitt gave up, and Thielen only had two catches for six yards, but the only catch that he gave up of those was the one-yard touchdown where it was pretty clearly an offensive pass interference. I thought otherwise he played extremely well. He wasn't in the picture, and he wasn't in the picture for good reason. And you know what? Minnesota did not try and target him, and that should really tell you something. They're not trying to match up on Averitt the way the Colts did, say, and really throw a lot of balls at him. They really spread their spread what they did around the field pretty pretty much. A lot of underneath, a lot of safe throws to tight ends, and, and very little in terms of throwing outside the numbers to the to the receivers. I think Averitt was a good matchup on Thielen. Um he, he had the you know the athleticism to stick with him. Um you know, without I haven't watched all 22 from this one, so it's hard to say if he was, you know, in his hip pocket the entire time. I think, you know, the Ravens kind of switched up between man and zone in this one a decent amount. So um, there's some different responsibilities. But overall, I, I think he played well. Um, you know, I, I would agree with you on that touchdown. I think it was clearly offensive pass interference. You know, you know, they said the commentators were, he didn't have the full arm extension. I mean, that's a veteran move. Maybe like it wasn't mm-hmm. the, the long extension that you'll see that in some obvious offensive pass interference. But when the cornerback is separated from the receiver, when he was literally like right in his hip pocket and then he's mm-hmm. all of a sudden a yard away. That's definitely a push off. There's no way around that. Uh, and, you know, with the with the ball at the one yard line, the side judge, the back judge. I mean, all those officials are in position to make that call from multiple angles at short distance. There's really no reason to miss that. To me, it was a very clear two handed extension. It wasn't a one handed extension, which, you know, that's the one I think receivers get away with more by not fully extending. When you do it too, I mean, you always look like you're kind of locking out on the guy. And I just, I, I hated the call, but you know, Hey, what are you going to do? It's, it's, the, it's near the end of an NFL game. They usually do kind of put the, put the whistles in their pocket or swallow them, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. If we, and if we're going to talk about pass interference, maybe this is a good time to mention the board pass interference as well, which was, mm-hmm. I think, even worse of a call, honestly, because he was playing the ball the entire way. I mean, he didn't turn the receiver. He didn't tackle the receiver. He might have had his arm on the receiver, but mm-hmm. there was very, very minimal contact. And it, it was just... I don't even know if it was a catchable pass, to be frankly honest with it. So it was pretty bogus. Um, I was really upset about that. And I know I got, I got, 
I got some people telling me on on Twitter that I was overreacting and that not to make excuses, but that that's a game changing play potentially, where you have a fourth down stop on the one yard line, um, mm-hmm. and then they come back and have the ball with you know first and goal from the one, and it's I don't know it, that just bothered me. It, it, it's probably worth six points right there. I mean, not, not necessarily seven, but but it's probably worth an expected six points. The difference between the fourth and two failure and the and the. Uh, I, I I was a little more ambivalent on that call because I did think the left arm was there and there was turning and I, I couldn't think of a good reason why the receiver would have turned on the play except for board doing it's like it's not the kind of thing where you're trying to sell the sell it uh, you, you you're trying to go up and get the ball but but you you're always told as a receiver you know don't try and sell pass interference you go make the catch first and if it looks like pass interference well then but you're always taking a chance when you're trying to draw a pass interference call. Uh, do you want to talk about any other player? Um, you know, I would, I would mention Bowser, um, because I thought he had a very good game. I mean, I, I think he's for a couple of years now been one of the Ravens more underrated defenders. Um, he had a really nice playing coverage in this one. Um, you know, he had a couple of nice pass rushes as well. N- nice pressures. Um, mm-hmm. he's gotten better, I think as a run defender over the years, he's, he's someone who's just a very well-rounded off offense or outside linebacker for the Ravens. Um, he does everything for them. He's the guy that you want out there on pretty much every play. I think he should be leading their rotation in snaps. Um, and I think he is on most weeks. Um, he's, he's, he's been the guy that is just a solid performer every single week. Um, and he, he does pretty much everything you want and everything you ask of him. Yeah, I, I agree. I love Bowser. 68 and a half percent of the snaps on the year leads is more than Oway at 67%. Uh, and, Let's see. We're at fifty-three point one percent for Houston now, so that gives you a, an idea of how that you know, has been divided up so far this year. Uh, I, I loved everything Bowser did in this game, and you've hit on most of these things. But one of the things to look at is you, if you look at the pressure numbers for Bowser, remember that he only gets to rush the passer about half the time. The other half of the time, he's dropping a coverage, and he is the best coverage outside linebacker in the game. He's one of the best coverage linebackers standing or down in the game period. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's just a guy that, that uh, fits really well with the Ravens. And, you know, it's, it's one of the guys I was afraid would end up in New England. Judon actually did end up there because he's he fits that same mold. But uh, but Bowser, I'm glad they got him back at a, at a, at a reasonable price. I think he's earning that contract and, and, and doing a good job with it. He was uh, definitely one of the guys I wanted to talk about. You got him. I'll move on to Josh Bynes, who I think had a fabulous game. Uh, he was flying all over the field. Now, we say this almost every week, or I say it almost every week, but it's just play speed is outstanding. Uh, he's, he's moving the football very quickly. Uh, he's making play after play, and, uh, and I just I couldn't be more excited about it. If you go to the article, by the way, this week, I'll ask you to do that so you don't have to go over all of these plays here. But Josh Bynes has a list of 14 plays where he made my notes. And the first three, unfortunately, were runs. You know, so so it runs where he got blocked. So yeah. I'm not, it's not only the positive notes you see in the negative notes there too, but those those positive notes are just freaking outstanding in terms of what he was able to do against the run. Maybe more importantly, he made the, the play on the tipped ball that looked like it was go, it was going to be completed. Um, that I think it was completed to Jefferson. It just reminds you of how few times we've seen that from a Ravens inside linebacker this year, where they make a play on a ball that's headed for a receiver behind them. I mean, just it doesn't happen. And and he's 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 made maybe two or three since he got back to being the starting inside linebacker, starting Mike. Uh, 
great move. I think they're sticking with it for the year. I don't think there's a question at this point that he's com- he would really have to completely fail at this point to lose that that spot. Yeah, I was thinking about it after the game on Sunday and what he might be as a free agent um, for for the Ravens because the Ravens are going to have a hard time selling him that he's going to be a starter for them. I think with you know with Harrison with Queen um, in the fold because obviously they're two young guys. They want them to be their starters, but they brought in Bynes with them as two young guys who they thought would be their starters. And he came in and really fixed the linebacker situation. It's, it's night and day that position since he came in. And it's not the first time this has happened. It happened in 2019 as well. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to lean on the fact that Bynes is going to be 33 next year. Yeah. Right around opening day, a little bit, maybe a little bit before it, but he's going to be 33. I I don't think there's going to be a, a, a line for his services. I think basically he could be the next continue on at the vet minimum for as long as, as long as you're good player for the Ravens. And I, you know, I, I love that plan. I, 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 you know, I, I, if you want to pencil him in right now, I think he's the starting Mike linebacker for the 2022 Ravens, barring another, you know, transaction of some sort. And with all the Ravens need to fix on this defense, that's not the first transaction I'd make. I'm not looking for a 29-year-old linebacker who might be better than Josh Bynes. I'm not making that mistake again. I'm not going back to the draft and spending a bunch of capital there. When we've got a couple guys in Harrison and Queen, we're still trying to figure out what they can do. I, I'm, I'm going to stick with Josh Bynes and, and, you know, if there's somebody else who's a maybe four years younger as a veteran Mike linebacker, maybe. But otherwise, I, you know, I'm not I'm not looking for for anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you. I would definitely bring him back. Um, I, and you're right. He probably doesn't have a lot of teams knocking on the door for his services. Um, but he's just been a, such a difference maker for this team. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, just the the, the play speed. It, it's just a mental processing. It's, it's understanding. Um, where to be, the, seeing how the play is developing in front of them, being in the right position and, you know, making it easier, not just for him, but for the players around him. And it's just, it's night and day, like I said, with with him on the field. It's, it's been so impressive to see, you know, how well the queen has played next to him. Yeah. Um, he feels like, he, you know, he might have saved queen's career for <laughs> honestly, because queen was completely trending in the wrong direction. And now he looks like he's someone who at least is salvageable as, as, your, as your weak side linebacker next to somebody who can get him in the right position. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's so much, but, but the most important thing is being a trail player like Queen is at the will. Um, he gets much more opportunity to read Bynes, to see yeah. where Bynes is heading. And Bynes often is going to have a much better idea where the football is. So he's trying to look for the football himself. And also he can read Bynes in terms of where, you know, out of the corner of his eyes, peripheral vision, whatever you call it, to see where Bynes thinks the football is. That's usually a great choice. In fact, if if teams use that as a tendency breaker to try and fool Bynes about where the football is, I think they'd also fool Queen a lot of the time because because it would just it would just be he's he's looking to 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 follow the leader there. Uh, it's it's a it is a good pairing right now, and it, it reminds me so much of the way they had to you know redraft, go back to the drawing board in 2019, uh, move Owasso off the mic spot and back to the wheel where he'd been very successful before. Um, you know, Queen didn't have any background as being successful at the will because he didn't really have background as being successful at any inside linebacker spot other than a few games in college. So you really had to, you really had to figure out, you know, how do I restrict his set of responsibilities and rebuild this guy's confidence in this guy's career? And and they found the, what I think is a perfect solution. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, and and we talked a little bit about Queen, and I just want to you know mention, he, he basically ruined one of the Vikings' drives on, on that mm-hmm. first down where he just shot the gap. You know, he, he looked like a running back, you know, breaking through the hole, but he was going through the hole to, to tackle a running back eight yards behind the line of scrimmage. What a play by him. What, you know, understanding the situation, understanding the slow developing play. Um, and it wasn't just him. I think uh, Matt BK had also blown up a, a guard in that play and, and opened up a path for him. But it was just, you know, it was impressive. And that's the kind of play that you want from that, that player, that capital you invested in, in your first round um, pick. So, I mean, hopefully this is just, you know, starting to get him going and to see these plays consistently building week after week. Um, because I think he has that potential if, if he is really fitting into his, his new role. Yeah. He, he had two plays in this game, which were exceptionally important. And one was that, and the other was the offensive pass interference penalty he drew. And I'm trying to remember if the offensive pass interference penalties, cause there's this first driving Q3 from Minnesota had two second and twenties. And I'm looking at both of them here and there's a penalty obviously that set up each of them. And I can't remember which one, actually was the one that was queen. But either way, eight-yard loss on first down, that's the kind of gambling defenses needs to do, needs to, need to do to have success. It's very hard to stop a you know stop an offense, particularly if they're playing four-down football, but even if they're playing three-down football, to stop them from getting 10 yards. You usually need an exceptional play, and that usually needs a penalty, a, a sack, a, you know, a tackle for loss, and, and, and maybe a significant loss like this one was. Uh, but Queens also, that offensive pass interference penalty drew was very significant uh, in terms of at least its expected value, although I'm not actually sure if, they, if it stalled the drive in and of itself. Yeah, I, I got to chuckle out of that one, too, because I think, you know, there's a little bit of gamesmanship there between two former um, LSU players who won a national championship <laughs> together. I think there was a little bit of, you know, I'm going to kind of get in your way here and maybe draw the penalty. Um, it, it wasn't the most... It, egregious offensive pass interference I've ever seen. But, you know, Jefferson definitely got in his way a little bit too. So um, th- that was that was funny to see. I enjoyed watching that. Yeah, it's, if, yeah, they talk about it every week when they see these things. And, and I guess they know the standard line for offensive pass interference is now got to get your hand, hands up and look back at the quarterback and not just put both hands on that defensive player. So it's, it's, uh, they seem to always have the, the same answer. Uh, how are we doing here? You have anybody else you want to talk about? Um. You know, just real quick, I would I would mention Justin Matabike because you know we talked about him briefly before. Um, you know, he's someone who he, I feel like he's kind of a, a two outcome guy. Um, he, he's a little bit like your home run hitter who, if 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 he doesn't have that quick first step where he can beat his defender, he can get locked out um, by an offensive t- guard who gets his arms on him. Um, he's not very good at of disengaging after he gets you know after an offensive lineman can, can block him. Um, but if he can win with his quickness um, and with his speed off the snap, he's really hard to defend um, yeah, or to block. Yeah. He's been outrageous at that. I mean, he's, he's a, he, I think he sheds well when he gets to the body, almost a little bit like Joe Frazier coming in on Muhammad Ali. You know, he's usually facing a longer armed opponent, obviously most guards in the NFL, but, but he has, he has very strong arms. Uh, I think he should be better at, at, you know, chopping, to, to, to get free on the inside. And, you know, since he's on the outside shoulder of that guard, most of the time, it's usually a one-on-one battle. And that's what the Ravens need. You know, they always said Warren Sapp and, you know, with it, you need that penetrating three tech uh, to be effective. Oftentimes they're talking about a four, three there, but even when Matapike is on in a passing situation or, or when he's on in your standard nickel alignment now in the NFL, you need that then, you know, when you're playing a four man front and he's, he's, uh, 
just been very good at creating enough wins there uh, to, to be a guy I think the Ravens uh, can trust. I, you know, it's interesting. Peter King, I think, uh, labeled him as as the uh, his breakout player of the year, or maybe his defensive player of the year, dark horse. I think it was, and I kind of think he did that a little bit formulaically, but but that's okay. It, it was it was an overstretch, but it's one you want to really get paid off at a hundred to one in terms of your credibility points <laughs> after the fact. But he's he he does have some of those characteristics. You know, he was he was an ascending player. He wins a lot of one on one battles, which is exactly what the Ravens want. And I thought he had a really good game here, and, and he did some run and pass in this game. Also drew a holding call, I believe. In this yeah, yeah. You know, actually, he did draw a holding call. I thought it was a little bit of a ticky tack one. It was right after that um, that uh, fake punt conversion. I think mm-hmm. it might have been a bit of a makeup call, honestly, because I think they realized they missed the holding on the fake punt on Geno Stone. Mm-hmm. That was pretty egregious. Um, and then they called something. I mean, he, he did get kind of tackled by the offensive lineman. Um, so I guess you could. It, it was you know by by the law. I think it was a holding, but it it wasn't you know super. Um, blatant and, and intentional, I think. Um, I think the guy was just kind of falling down. But regardless, you know, that's a, that's another one of those plays that really sets back a, an, an offense. Um, and that was part of the reason why, you know, the Ravens were able to get the ball back even after that conversion of, of the fourth down. All right. All right. Uh, tell you what, let's move on and talk MVPs. I want to do a little bit of mailbag with you if we have time for that. So uh, I'll go 3 2 one of my MVPs. You want to play along? Do you have other guys? Uh, I think yours are definitely the ones I would go with. Yeah, so we can go. Okay. So we'll just discuss them. We've, all, we've hit on these guys really briefly all, but Bowser is my number three guy, and I felt kind of bad having his three, but it was three or two for him. Uh, big, great game, and I think you really hit nailed on it when you say he really contributed in all phases, whether it's coverage, pass rush, or run defense. Definitely. I think for me, he'll be my number two, but we had the same three. So we just, we just go to the other guy now, with, which is Justin Matabike. Uh, we talked about, you know, he, he's he's that guy on the interior, like we said, you know, make those plays quick with his quickness, um, disrupting. Um, he, sometimes he might get beat in, in the run defense, but that's not that's not his strength. But if you can provide that interior pass rush, that's something that the, the Ravens, you know, really desperately need. Yeah, it is a lot of value there and something they've been missing. Uh, they get some of that with Campbell. They've gotten good pressure yeah. with Campbell continuously. And by the way, Campbell could be on this MVP list just about every week. He's fantastic every freaking week. And, and he got more pressures again in this game. Uh, he, he was good against the run, although he didn't always make the tackle. Um, he, he was he was blowing up plays, and, and he could have been on this list. I'll go to my number one guy, though. That's Josh Bynes. We've talked about him a lot in terms of, of what he did in this game, but uh, it's it's almost as if he's impacted two positions at a high level since he's gotten to this with with how much better both inside linebacker spots are playing. I mean, absolutely. I mean, we like you said, we spent a lot of time about him. He's he's been a difference maker as soon as he stepped on the field for the Ravens. He showed up the inside linebacker spot, um, and you know whether or not he has a future with the Ravens. I think this year he's he's going to be a player that really elevates his defense, and if if they make a run, it's going to be largely because of him. Yes, I, I agree. I think that, that he's he's been the biggest uh, live patch they've had on this on this defense for the year so far. If if uh, you can head over to the film study mailbag and we'll go through a few of these questions. We'll do the alternating format. Gabe, you good with me on this? Yep. Totally good. Okay. So I'll start off. Uh, we're looking at Brad McGowan, who says, this Ravens D has looked good in spurts, but has really struggled giving up big plays. Are there any obvious scheme or personnel changes to get this under control? I'm going to just say in this game, uh, this is not necessarily been true of all the games because they've had a lot of big plays they've given up due to missed tackles in previous games. This was a good tackling game. They didn't have a bunch of missed tackles. In fact, 
as I took notes, the only real missed tackle is Geno Stone on the on the uh, special teams run, and you know he was he was held. Otherwise, they didn't really have a bad missed tackle. They had some diving tackle attempts that didn't quite get there. I don't look at that as a missed tackle the way some other services might. Um, so what I would say about this game is they did a really good job of balancing big plays allowed with also having some impact negative plays, both penalties, negative runs. Uh, they didn't have any sacks, but they had penalties and negative runs. And I, I thought they did a good job. The balance of that was good in this game for the uh, for the Ravens' defense. So I think they were better than their 31 points allowed really indicated. Yeah, I mean, like we said, the special teams return, that's part of it as as to why you get that those seven mm-hmm. points. So, um, And then for a large period of this game, the, the Vikings really got nothing from the first quarter to the end of the game. Aside from that special team touchdown, they were pretty much shut out. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I do think the tackling was very improved in this one, um, especially coming off the, the Bengals game where, you know, it was, that was, that was ugly to watch. Yeah. Yeah, tackling, and, particularly in the secondary, I yeah. thought was really good in this game. Now they had uh, Dalvin Cook got a couple of players turned around, but that's not the same thing. That's just very difficult to capture open field, big player. Uh, I, I don't, I don't really blame the blame either to either Clark or Humphrey for that. Yeah, um, I, I think before Elliott got hurt, he had a couple of really nice tackles and, and open open field tackles. Um, I think it was clearly something that you know they kind of ingrained in, in the team in the bye week that the tackling really has to be shored up, or or it's, it's going to be game over for for this team that you can't play the style of defense that they play and not tackle it's just not going to work out mm-hmm. all right got one yeah i so jeff b uh, on um twitter he asked about oa um adafi oa and his kind of a fast start you know he had a lot of um big impact plays and then he seemingly gone a little quiet um over the past couple of weeks i think um is there a cause for that I, to me, I think that this game, he didn't do anything in the stat sheet. I, I don't think I had him for any pressure. Um, I think he's been double teamed a lot um, from what I've seen. There's, He's definitely, the, I think, been you know pinpointed as the, the, the number one you know, pass rusher for the Ravens off the edge. Um, and if you can get him with, with a secondary you know blocker, then that's going to be good for your, for your offense um, because he's been abusing some tackles in, with his get off at times. So you know, that's something that teams have been trying to take away. Um, but I, I do think, you know, he's been solid all around. Like he hasn't been a negative player necessarily um, just because he, he wasn't necessarily in the stat sheet as much as he has been in some games. Doesn't mean he's not having any impact out there. I, I thought he actually had a pretty bad game this game. And I intended to talk about him in terms of the players we were picking alternately. And, and the, the, the play that really bothered me was getting blocked by a wide receiver to seal mm-hmm. the right edge on the 66 yard run play, the run play by Cook. So that it, that just is not a good thing to happen to an edge defender. Period. But it's also you know something where it's a it's supposed to be a specialty of OA to keep his arms extended to keep locked out on that. It's just it's it's not good to to have a the right edge so easily taken away from you. And there were other things that went wrong on that play, by the way. Seventy five, the right tackle for Minnesota made a great couple of blocks. He made a great seal block and then he went up another level and he pushed down Josh Bynes, which really turned it from, you know, a ten or fifteen yard gain into a sixty six yard gain. Yep. So it, it wasn't all away, but away getting beat on that edge was a was a, a fairly substantial part of that play. I'll go to the next question I've got from Park, uh, and he is at Habitual Hustler. Uh, safety position is the million-dollar question. With Elliott gone, do you see us 
using less dime now? Do you see Stone getting in the mix or us bringing a vet like we did with Gilchrist last year? Um, I, I think it's fair to say that all options are on the table, but I think they probably, given their salary cap position, are going to stick with Stone and try and conserve the cap that they've got. Uh, they also have Ardarius Washington, who will be another backup. Stone, I see, as a, as a guy you put on the back end in the dime, so he actually fits what they need. As the third safety, you get him in. I'm more concerned about when they only have two safeties on the field, how much back end capability do they have with Stevens and Clark. So we'll see, we'll see how that works out. But I think Stone, in terms of what his role is, is fairly well set as being the back end of the dime uh, for right now. Uh, I, I, I think it's less likely, in my opinion, they'll probably go outside the organization and find a guy, even though there are some available. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I wouldn't surprise me if they bring in a couple of players to, for workouts and see if anybody fits what they want. Um, we mentioned Trey Boston earlier. He, he might potentially be that guy. Um, but it's probably it's probably going to end up being Stone as, as that extra safety if they do end up playing, um, you know, more dime. They, they, I mean, who knows? The, the Ravens, they, they kind of do things that are unexpected sometimes with their, with their personnel decisions. Um, you know, Ardarius Washington is someone who I don't think has been active this season once. Um, maybe one game he was active. Yeah, he was active. Um, but he's, I think they see him more as a slot cornerback insurance um, for Tavon Young than they do as a safety guy. So I'm not sure if he's really going to be still active um, unless they need somebody for sure special teams. But my guess is that's going to be Richards if they call up somebody to play on special teams. Um, so th- yeah, I, I think that's probably what I would expect. Yeah, I, I don't really expect the Richards signing to be that big a deal. And here's why. He's got one uh, free elevation left. So they can bring him up to be a special teams player in every game, in any game they really like to. And then I, I actually expect that they'll just cut him after that. Uh, I, I think he won't even be around on the practice squad after that because they, they might need that veteran spot again. Yeah, they might keep point. him around and, and they might, they might add him, but you know, the Ravens don't have money to activate another guy to the 53 willy nilly and not a guy like Richards for certainly who, where he only plays special teams. It's just, it's too much of their remaining cap to do that. And so I, I don't think that's where that, that will end up. Uh, you, your turn. Time for one more. Um, one, one more. So uh, Zach Weinberg asks on Twitter if we reach the point where Ravens should commit to the idea of Queen as the weak side linebacker going forward. Um, I think we talked about that a little bit already, and I think that is where we are, at least for the rest of the season. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think Bynes is, is, has solidified himself as the Mike linebacker in the Ravens defense. Um, and that the one thing I could see potentially is Queen um, – taking a little bit more snaps than he's, he's kind of trending upwards than instead of the downwards trend that we've seen in the past few weeks. Um, so maybe he's back around, you know, the 30 to 40 snap range. And I think it's also going to be kind of a matchup dependent and, and what they want out of their linebackers in terms of, you know, do they want to play more dime Then you probably see less queen. Um, but I think that he's definitely in their base packages, he's, he's going to be the, the weak side going forward. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think, I think they're in a position right now where they could, commit, they could end up committing to more snaps from Queen. And the reason is I don't think the Ravens gain a lot from having Board and Bynes on the field at the same time, although they do do that sometimes. Uh, maybe that's a second and 10 kind of defense that they want to put out there to have a little bit more pass coverage ability on the field. But basically, I like the idea of Board being the lone inside linebacker in that when they put the dime on. Um, and then... 
Queen and Bynes sh- sharing the role on two inside linebacker plays, which when you look at it, is about 70% of the plays. They're, they're going to play 30% or a little bit less, maybe dime. Uh, so that's going to be most of the snaps going to Queen, and I think that's what we might see. Harrison being out uh, certainly is helping Queen. When Harrison comes back, he may not play that much. I mean, I, one of the things that had been happening is he had four snaps at outside linebacker in a three uh, three inside linebackers on the field in a jumbo nickel, and he was actually an outside linebacker, uh, uh, lined up as an outside linebacker effectively. So I, I would I think it's more likely he'll see additional snaps like that, and he may have to wait till next year for his uh, you know a new opportunity for, to emerge for him either by injury or or by you know very good play in camp next year. Yeah, I, I think you know there's there's some interesting things that can be done with with linebackers. You know, you never know, especially with with someone like Wink Martindale at, at the helm. He's he's always got something creative up his sleeve. So um, I think. Do you, do you have any other other questions you want to hit before we no, wrap it up? No, I, I think we're good. I think we have to wrap it up here because because it's been so long. But the time always flies by when I'm talking football with you, Gabe. I love to do it. It certainly does. It's always fun to come on. Um, thanks once again for for having me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually about to record a podcast for the Situation Room after this. And I'm, I'm actually be doing solo tonight because Jordan is got some deathly illness and he can't do it with me. So do, do um, you want to, do you want to co-pilot for that? You just let me know if you, if you'd like me to come on with you, but if you're doing, if you, if you're doing solo, if you want to do your thing, that's cool too. You, you know, I've never done a solo podcast before and I'm actually kind of excited to try it out. Um, so it might be a horrible, horrible mistake, uh-huh. but it's, it's going to be fun one way or the other. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll have some time to laugh at your own jokes. It's, it, I, I had to do it in camp a couple of times. It's just, it's a little awkward, but you know, if you, if you're a natural kind of a storyteller, kind of like you are, I, I, I think it'll come out just fine. All right. So uh, first of all, tell people where they can talk football with you. Yeah. So on Twitter, um, at Gabe Fergie, um, pre- pretty active, especially on game days. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm tweeting out my thoughts uh, as, as the games go by, um, you know, any, anything NFL related. I, I watch pretty much every game I can. Um, so it, I'm definitely passionate about the Ravens, passionate about football. So I, I, I love to talk to people. So hit me up on Twitter at Gabe Fergie. I'm, I'm always there to interact with people. All right. Outstanding. And, and by the way, give the situation room a try. It's a, it's a really good pod and these guys really know their football. I enjoyed, I enjoyed them tremendously, met them for the first time personally, uh, uh, for the, when we were out in Las Vegas for the Raiders game, but, uh, but lots of fun and a, and a, a great group. I want to mention also to people, if you want to get on a 25 years pod, we're down to about like 10 to 12 of these slots left for the entire season. Hit me up with your idea with a DM on Twitter. We're looking to talk about any old game, old, um, trend old defensive style old offensive thing you'd like to see brought back comparing new to old anything you'd like but it's got to be kind of a narrow topic we don't want to talk about the mount rushmore of ravens players we want a narrow topic that we can we can handle in about 20 minutes at some reasonable depth uh i'd love to have you on uh gabe thanks again for coming on yeah you know i I always enjoy it Uh, like you said we always we always go a little long but it's it's fun when we when we have these conversations and i'm looking forward to the next time All right. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. When 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.